Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. And today we want to invite your spirit and your presence with us, that our minds will be enlightened, our hearts will be transformed, and we will come into the unity of, of Christian love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And for those who are not on our, our class email list, if you want to be on our email list to receive uh, various announcements and things, um, just email me your email address uh, to trjennings at comcast.net, and we will put you on our email list if you'd like that. Also, we do have podcasts that you can sign up for. Our, our shows are podcast each week, and Dean has made our notes available as an RSS feed, which means if you sign up for the feed every week, as soon as we put the notes up, notes up they automatically come to, your, to basically your outlook, if that's how you have it set up. So it would be like receiving an email with the notes on it. Today we're doing lesson uh, number six in our quarterly, Fruits of the Spirit. And the lesson title this week is, The Fruit of the Spirit is Kindness. And if someone would read the first paragraph for us that begins, When Paul Illustrated. When Paul illustrated how love behaves, patience came into his mind first. Love suffers long. Immediately after patience, he wrote that love is kind. Showing that love and kindness so belong together that without kindness, no act is truly done in love. Without kindness, no act is truly done in love. So, question, what is kindness? What does it look like? What does it sound like? What does it mean to be kind? It has to be demonstrated. She says it has to be demonstrated. So whatever kindness is, it has to be seen. It has to be lived out. But what is kindness? A demonstration of love. So love in action would be kind. Okay, what does it look like? Have you ever seen kindness? What does it look like? Unselfish. Have you seen have you seen kindness this week? Haiti. Okay, that's good. Uh, is there kindness happening in Haiti? Yeah. Okay, kindness in action. I mean, it's important to talk about the concept, so it's also important to see it right around you, be able to look and say, hey, there's kindness. Yeah. So I looked in the dictionary for definitions of kindness and, and see how these might apply. A good or benevolent nature or disposition. A good or benevolent nature or disposition. How about this one? Having, showing, or proceeding from benevolence. Which certainly was happening in Haiti, right? Benevolence. Indulgent, considerate, or helpful, humane. So what's helpful, humane, what's benevolent? And mild, gentle, or clement. So, the second paragraph. Let's read the second paragraph. Patience. Starts with patience. Somebody read that for us. Patience, we saw uh, last week, is love forbearing. Kindness, on the other hand, implies a more active expression of love. Often, patience might be manifest by doing nothing. Kindness, in contrast, is manifest by what we say and do, and more important, how we say it and do it. And even more important, why we say it and do it. Thoughts about that? Do you like that? I do too. So let's, let's give some examples of what kindness looks like in real life. Besides that, we got the Haiti example. See, I think, I think sometimes maybe we, we tend to polarize our, our view of kindness to things like Haiti. Um, if we speak with a loud, intense, and angry tone, even a commanding tone, would that be kind? No. Well, do circumstances matter? Does, does the lesson suggest what's in the heart, the attitude, what's intended, what you're trying to achieve, what the goal is for, for speaking that way? Does that have any bearing on whether it's kind or not? Or is it only the, the attitude and the, uh, the, reflected in the behavior? Can you appear hostile? And be kind. Yes. Clearing out the when God thundered at Sinai, was God being kind? Or was God being unkind? Is God ever unkind? No. So thundering at Sinai was kind. Why? How? How is that kind? How is that a reflection of kindness? Because God was working in emergency measure for the good of the people in the situation. He was working for the good of the people. Yeah. He needed their attention and it was in their best interest to get their attention. He needed their attention and it was their best interest. And, and how would the people have responded back then 
to a still small voice that Elijah heard on the mountain after the wind and the fire and the earthquake? Well, they wouldn't have heard it. They wouldn't have heard it. And if they didn't hear the voice of God, where would they have gone? Where would, where would they have ended up at, after, at Sinai if, if they never heard the voice of God at all? What would have happened to them? What would have been the outcome? What path were they on? They were on the path back to Egypt. They were back to, heading back to slavery. Weren't they? Let's go back to Egypt. It was better there. Was God being kind when he thundered? Do we, when you think of kindness, does that kind of kindness ever come to your mind? Or you always think of the, the gentle, quiet, tender form of kindness? Parents, I know there's parents in the room. Have you ever had a child who was unruly? My mother, the only one. Yes, and with an unruly or rebellious child, have you ever thundered at your child? I see some heads nodding now, okay. And when you thundered at your child, what you're trying to put the fear of God into them. <laughs> Metaphorically speaking, of course. Weren't you? Yes. yes. Because from that point on, you wanted your children to live in fear of you forever, right? No. Well, why would you do it? Attention. To get their attention for what reason? To speak gently. What else did I hear? To protect them? Protection. So most of you are thinking immediately of times when somehow your child was in danger. Somehow your child didn't understand what they were doing to themselves. Somehow you saw that if you didn't act, that they might injure themselves or injure others in some way. Whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, whether it's their character, you saw danger. And they weren't listening to the small voice. And you raised your voice. Was it kind to do so? Were you being kind to thunder in that circumstance? Yes. If you have a three-year-old and you walk by and you see them with lighter fluid and striking a lighter, would you be kind to raise your voice? Yes, you would be. It would be cruel to, well, it would be better, sweetie, if you just put that away now. <laughs> wouldn't that be cruel? So it would be kind to command them to put that away. In that circumstance, wouldn't it? Wouldn't kindness command with an authoritarian voice in that circumstance? Put it away. Is it because from that point on, as your child grows, you want them always to interact with you on that level? No. No. So is God ever unkind? What about how he treats the wicked in the end? Yes, in fact. I was working with someone who is HIV positive, he's got TB, he's got hepatitis C, he's got um, diabetes, he's got a lot of issues. Can you all hear her? She's working with somebody who's HIV positive, got diabetes, hepatitis C, TB, TB, tuberculosis. And and I want to say to them, you know, if you don't stop this, you're dead. But it's kind of out of my jurisdiction. She says she wants to say to the guy, if you don't stop this, you're dead, but it's out of her jurisdiction. What is your jurisdiction? I don't know. When you're in a hospital setting. What is your job? What do you do? Nursing on the floor, but I'm not the doctor. But you're a nurse? Yeah. Huh. So you have a a responsibility to provide care for him? Correct. So you don't communicate to him in a way that he can see there's a cause and effect relationship between behavior and why he's there? Hey, have you ever thought about why you're having all this trouble? Have you ever thought about why you've got so many problems? Have you ever thought about things you might be able to do that could help you stay healthy longer? Do you realize that you have some control over some of the events in your life? Not everything, but you could make an impact. You can steer your life in a direction of health or a direction of of pain and suffering. Have Have you ever thought about those things? Did you inquire? Is it, in, is it in, within your realm of responsibility to have a conversation with your patient? I wouldn't think so. Sure. Sure it is. Isn't it? Yes. Of course it is. Is it your responsibility to tell him what to do? No. Not in a directive because he's an autonomous person. I mean, you can tell him what you recommend as, any, as a doctor. Hey, I recommend this, this, this. This is my prescription for you. But the patients are free to reject him. And so... Often a better way is to help them catch on to the fact that their choices actually have direct consequences over them. 
But sometimes it doesn't work. I had a patient that uh, I was consulted to see in the ICU who was in for liver failure. And when I went to see him, I don't even know why they asked me to see him when they, when they asked me. He was on a ventilator and he couldn't communicate in any way. And he was in for liver failure due to heavy alcohol use. And uh, I came back after he had been stabilized enough that they could extubate him. And his eyes were jaundiced. His, his, his skin was all yellow. He had little petechiae all over because his liver was failing. And when I went to talk to him, I said, uh, hi, I'm Dr. Jennings. Um, I'm a psychiatrist. Your doctor asked to see you. I don't need no psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, well, tell me what, what's going on that you're here. I've been drinking. And yes, your doctor's exactly right. I said, your doctor's wanted me to come see you to see about getting you into a detox program to help detox you and a rehab program so that you won't end up killing yourself with all this alcohol. I don't want no detox. I don't want no rehab. I said, do you want to die? No, I don't want to die. Tell me what you think will happen to you if you leave here and go back to drinking. I expect it'll kill me. Are you suicidal? No, I ain't suicidal. Then, well, let me, and I'm, I'm like shaking my head. Okay, if you, if you leave here and you're going to go drink and you know it's going to kill you, but you don't want to die, why are you going to go drink? Well, because I like drinking more than anything else, and I'd rather die than not drink. What are you going to do? Nothing. Nothing. You can't do anything. There are some people that can't be helped. It doesn't mean we don't try. I talked to him, but that's what happened. He got stabilized medically. They discharged him, went home drinking. Only way to help him, he said, would be take his freedom away. Take his freedom away. Well, ultimately, whether you realize it or not, that's what sickness does. When we violate God's laws, whatever the laws are, we always enslave ourselves and take away our freedoms. You see, this man in that ICU, was he as free as a man who's completely healthy? This man with his liver disease and all these bleeding problems and all these physical weaknesses, was he as free? How about people who eat to excess to the point of significant obesity? Are they as free as people who live a healthier lifestyle? Smokers who get lung disease or heart disease, are they as free? No, our freedoms are taken away by the impact and consequences of what happens to us when we violate. This is why God's law is called the great law of liberty. Harmony with the law gives us more freedom, keeps us healthy, keeps us autonomous. Sunday's lesson. Ever had anybody in a sermon or, or somewhere hear the statement, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And when you hear that, what do you typically hear? I mean, when I say hear, what do you typically think? What, what does it mean? How has it been pro- promoted to you? What concepts or ideas come up? Be perfect. What does that mean for me? No sinning. No sinning. So we've got to, okay, we're going to be perfect. We're going to be perfect. It's a promise. I can do it. I'm going to wear all the right clothes. Not wear the stuff I'm not supposed to wear. Going to eat all the right foods. Going to make sure I guard the edges of the Sabbath. Going to be perfect. Going to be perfect. This is how you've often heard it. Yes. Is it encouraging? Does it bring you freedom? Maybe we should read the scripture in context and see where this, the context of this passage is. Because we've often heard this as, as very much like you describe as behavior and performance. It's not. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. And thinking through, what does the text mean? Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is imperfect. Listen to what the text says. Matthew 5, starting verse 43. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brother, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is the focus of the perfection? Loving other people. Love other people. Is it about what percentage you get on your final exams? Score perfect. Got to get 100%. Is it about how many basketballs you make when you're out playing basketball? You got to make, make, make 100%. Got to be perfect. Is it about how you dress? No, it is not about behavior. And in fact, when we take it the traditional way, be perfect, behave perfect, 
Where does our mind focus? Or to whom does our mind focus? Self. self. Notice this. The mind begins to focus on self. We've got to be perfect. We've got to perform. We've got to watch what we do. And then notice what happens. And then notice what happens. How do we treat other people? Oh, Sabbath afternoon, your next door neighbor, 70-year-old lady's had a tree fall in her front yard, and there's a big old thing, and she's out there by herself trying to move this branch off her front porch. But you've got to be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Thou shalt not work on the Sabbath. And so what do you do? You ignore her. What did the Pharisees do in Christ's day when they saw a sick person on Sabbath? They needed to be perfect, right? So they couldn't help somebody on the Sabbath. What did Christ do? When we think of perfection in loving others, where does it take our focus? It takes it off self. It takes it outward. Our concern is to uplift and build us. We use our energy, our time, our resources to give. Be perfect in how we love others. Is it a completely different world? Yeah. I saw a hand somewhere in the back. Yes. I've always thought of God, or Jesus, as a practical God. You know, in the, in the animal culture, the practical tells you, get him out. You know, not like plan to do stuff, but pra- this is what the practical thing is. You help at the moment. Don't toy with me. Should I, shouldn't I, shouldn't I, shouldn't I? What happens inside you when you take the be perfect passage and apply it to behavior? Be perfect. And you're looking at all the things you have to do and don't do. What, what, happens, what happens inside you? Discouragement. Discouragement. What happens to anxiety and fear? Does anxiety and fear go down? No. Or do you get more stressed and worried? And as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Notice, perfect love casts out all fear. Something's wrong with this approach if, if we are trying to be perfect and we're getting more stressed, more worried, and more fearful. How about when you're actually thinking about how you can bless another? You're using your energy to help another person. What happens inside you? More fear or less fear? Less fear. Loving others calms fear. It's powerful. There's another aspect to the life of love. This comes out of Testimonies to the Church. Volume 4, page 454. Listen to this. None who have a sense of their accountability to God will allow the animal propensities to control reason. Those who do this are not Christians, whoever they may be and however exalted their profession. The injunction of Christ is, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. He here shows us that we may be as perfect in our sphere as he is in his sphere. What do you think about that passage? Deconstruct it, break it down. Perfection is not allowing the animal propensities to control reason. What does that mean? What are the animal propensities? Oh, say it louder. I heard it here and here. Self-preservation, survival of the fittest. Watch out for them. Isn't that what the whole animal kingdom is operating on now? Kill or be killed. Survival of the fittest. Watch out for number one. And what is the primary emotion which drives that? Fear. She's saying, perfect love. Be perfect. Don't be controlled by fear. Don't let fear and insecurity overrule your judgment. Don't let fear and insecurity determine your thinking and beliefs. Don't let fear and insecurity dominate the actions you take. Yeah, Russell. My understanding is that there's also some, some differences in the Western and the Eastern minds in regard to the whole concept of perfection. Uh, in, in the Greek mind, my understanding is it's perfection is, is on continuum. You never, ever reach a, a point, which, which dovetails nicely with the concept that we will continue learning in heaven. We will always be striving for a greater level of perfection. I think there's even another aspect of that, and that's perfect Perfect in stages of development. The, the, the seed is perfect, the sprout is perfect, the young stalk is perfect, the corn in its early development is perfect. And you see, it's, the child as an infant is perfect, but then you see there's this developmental perfection where perfection perfect in the place and stage where we are in our development as well. And we are to have that perfect love or perfect heart attitude in our continual evolution 
eternal development. Maturing. Yes. I know we cannot be perfect yet, and what you're expressing your sentiments. Um, am I right in saying that um, when God looks at man, he doesn't look at him directly, but he looks at him through Jesus Christ. And then he sees us because of what Christ has done for us. So he sees, he sees man via Jesus Christ. I don't know how you see that. Just... Yeah, it's a good question, and it's been presented in lots of different ways. Um, when David prayed, Father, search me, see the wicked way in me. Created me a clean heart, O oh God, renew a right spirit. Was he saying, search me and see your perfect son and don't realize that I'm sick and diseased and defective and need to be recreated. I don't want you to see my defect. Or was he actually praying, see me, see my defect, see my need, see my, my, my sinfulness and cleanse me, restore me, wash me and I will be white as snow. So was the father able to actually see the human need and through Christ provide for that need? And through Christ, fill that need and change mankind. See, I see it much more like that. We're sick. We're dying. We go into the medical, uh, the, the physician's office. You're, you've got terrible abdominal pain, cramping. You're horribly sick. The, the way that's sometimes presented is this. is The doctor comes in to examine you just before he takes his stethoscope to listen or his hands to palpate. You quickly shove your healthy brother in front of you and say, here, examine him in my stead. That doesn't work. But there is a place that this is absolutely true. This is absolutely true. And this is what Ellen White says when she talks in Christ's Object Lessons about the, the robe of Christ's righteousness woven in the loom of heaven where there's no human devisings of any kind. And she says that to be covered in the robe of Christ's righteousness means that we are to think his thoughts. We are, have our hearts brought into harmony with his. Our desires are like his. He dwells within us. And this is what it means to be covered, to have Christ's likeness within. And so when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see us anymore. He sees the perfection of Christ who is now dwelling within. And so absolutely, he will see the perfection of Christ. So, so by Christ, he'll see the perfection. Okay. That's how he sees me. That's exactly right. But what I think he sees first is he sees our need of Christ, provided Christ for our need, for God's all of the world that he gave his only begotten son and whoever believes in him. So he provides Christ for our need. Christ achieves what we could never achieve. And now Christ, through the working of the Spirit, reproduces his character within the believer. And then when the Father looks at us, he sees his son because his son lives within. That's how I see it. Yes? But that happens only as we invite him in. Wonderful. Revelation. And what would keep us from inviting him in? Maybe, in fact, let's go through our lesson because there's some points in our lesson that actually give us reasons why people don't invite him in. Because it's absolutely right. Christ achieved for us in his perfect life. Remember, Christ had a human brain. It says in James that divinity cannot be tempted by evil. God cannot be tempted. So all the temptations of Christ were through his humanity, his human brain. And what was it that, that the law of God requires? What does the law of God require? Anybody know? I hear some of you saying it, yes. It says in Desire of Ages 761, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give, but Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to Hall, who will accept it. Understand, a perfect character... God has already. There are angels in heaven that have perfect character. Gabriel, we would say, has a perfect character. But a human perfect character, there was no human brain free of the infection of sin. Christ had to come as a human and replace God's perfect character in the human being. This is what he did on earth. A real accomplishment. Not only that, it says in the scriptures that by his death he destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil... He destroyed the devil's work, 1 John 3, 8. And he also destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life, 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. What is the basis of death? He destroyed death. What is its basis? Why does death come? Sin. Sin, sin is, a, sin is the, 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 the religious moniker we give to it. Define it for me. What is it? 
separation from God. That's what it results in, absolutely. Sin results in separation from God, totally. And God is a source of life, and so we don't live if we're separated from God. But it tells us in 1 John, sin is transgression of the law, or in the Greek, anomia, which means lawlessness. We're outside the law. What, what law? The law of love. If we're outside the law of love, why does that bring death? What is the basis of life in God's universe? The law of love. God is love. All things were created by God. Now, some people think that God's law was added. Just think this through. If you go back in time, before anything in the, in the universe was ever created, back when First John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Back then, before God created, was the law of love in existence. Yes. The law of love is the foundation of God's universe. Everything that God creates is in harmony with it because all things emanate from Him and all things are sustained by Him, it says in the Scripture. And this is why the law can never be changed. It's eternal. It's, it's, it's unchangeable. It's uncompromising. Life is constructed to operate only in harmony with God's perfect character of love. When man breached God's law, his character was no longer in harmony. The law demanded... Righteousness. Man doesn't have it. We can't offer it. We can't give it. We're all terminal. We're going to die. So what did Christ do? He partook of our humanity. Our infirmities, our iniquities were laid upon him. He became one of us. For what purpose? Traditional view says because his dad was angry and he needed to get his dad to be nice again. He had to pay a legal penalty so his dad wouldn't uh, inflict punishment upon us. That's traditional. What does Ellen White say? What does Scripture say? The law of love is the foundation of God's government, is the law of life. Life is, is only exists in harmony with it. And the law requires perfect harmony with it. So Christ came as a human being and restored the law of love back into the human being. Jesus Christ, the individual person. Now we have a human being who has never been out of harmony with God's law of love. The race, the species, planet Earth was saved in Jesus Christ. And, then, and Jesus says, and Jesus says, uh, it's good for you that I leave. If I don't leave, the comforter won't come. When he comes, he's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. He's going to take what is mine, and he's going to make it known to you. That's what Ellen White said in Zyra 761, that after Christ develops a per, this perfect character, he offers it as a free gift. The Holy Spirit takes the perfection of Christ. He writes the law, the law of love, the character of God, written in our hearts again. We, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature. It's a regenerating, restoring, renewing process through the conduit of Jesus Christ who links heaven and earth together through his victorious life. Yes. When the disciples were with Jesus, they viewed his beautiful character and his beautiful love towards others, but they didn't internalize it. They didn't internalize it until the Holy Spirit came and filled their lives with his Exactly right. And this is, this is what a lot of churches miss. The Adventist church is right on because we say, see, most of the traditional legal models say that everything for salvation of, of, of us was accomplished, complete at the cross. Adventists say the remedy for, for, for sinfulness was accomplished at the cross, but the application of that remedy, we call it the high priestly ministry in heaven. Christ is applying through the Holy Spirit, and without the effectual work of the Holy Spirit to apply in the believer what Christ achieved, then we still are without hope. Does that make sense? Yes, we have to receive and it has to be applied to the life, and the Holy Spirit is the agency of the Godhead who makes effectual in the life of the believer all, Christ that, it, all that Christ achieved. So isn't it really his presence? Isn't he, in essence, the Holy Spirit? Well, yes, she says, isn't it his presence? And this gets into the whole question of the Trinity. But yes, you can't really separate him. For unto us a child is born. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Who's the Counselor? A mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So in the child, it says the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. Yeah, so it's, I, don't, I don't really try to, to disentangle. They're, they're one. If you see me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Three separate individualities, but one in character, purpose, method, ability, motive, all those things. Yeah. And I think we have an insight into how man was created because we were created in God's image. Two separate individualities are to come together into the unity, and the two shall be one. 
that is God's original design. Satan's plan is to destroy the image of God. He wants to cause division. He wants to break down all that God designed. He wants to cause division in the marriage. He wants to cause division in our church family. Let's go on with our, with our lesson. So none who have a sense of their accountability allow the animal propensities to control reason. We don't allow fear. And this is that fear circuit coming up. And that fear and insecurity to overrule what, what, what our duty. Remember what, what we were told in the, in the councils that we are to do what's right because right doing is pleasing to God. We do what's right because it is right. And right doing is pleasing to God. We make the choice to follow what our good judgment says is healthy. In the Garden of Gethsemane, was Christ tempted with powerful emotions and feelings? Did he let his human emotions that he assumed upon himself overrule his good judgment, or did he make the choice to follow what he knew was the right course, even if it didn't feel good? That's our pattern. We will all be faced with circumstances where our feelings will tempt us. James chapter 1, no one should say God tempts, because God cannot be tempted by evil. Each one of us are tempted, we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. It's our powerful human emotions, these animal propensities, that rise up, and we are then to, to stand firm. When I first realized that fear was part of this infection of sin, and that perfect love casts out fear, I began to, when I start feeling security, when I start feeling fear, I, I say these prayers in my mind. I say, Lord, I'm feeling afraid right now. I'm feeling insecure. And I realize that's part of the infection of sin. I didn't choose to have this problem. I was born this way. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity. But I don't want to be controlled by it anymore. Pour your spirit of love into my heart. Give me wisdom and truth. Allow me the strength to choose your course, even though I'm feeling afraid. I encourage you to pray that prayer. It's powerful. It takes one of the weapons out of Satan's hands as love brings peace and you're strengthened to go forward. In the course that you know is right. Then it says genuine love. Perfection and love means that we love our enemies. Well, let's look at Monday's lesson because Monday's lesson teaches us an example about this. Monday's lesson, 2 Samuel chapter 9, recounts the story of King David's kindness to the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. And the lesson asks, how did David, by this act, this act of kindness, reveal God's character? Any thoughts about that? Wasn't it... Uh, in those days when a new king came, usually destroyed all the descendants That's right. of the old king. Yep. Instead of doing that, he brought him in and fed him and people. For those who can't hear, she said in the tradition, when a new king comes in, they kill the members of the other royal family so there'll be no competitors for the throne. And instead of David killing all the members of Saul's family, the grandson of Saul, uh, he brought him into his home, provided, restored him all the lands that were Saul's previously and the family's previously, and fed him at the king's table every day. Look at the first paragraph and listen to this in the lesson on Monday. It says, Through reports from enemies of David, Mephibosheth had been led to cherish a strong prejudice against him as a usurper. But the monarch, monarch's generosity and courteous reception of him and his continued kindness won the heart of the young man. He became strongly attached to David, and like his father Jonathan, he felt that his interest was one with that of the king whom God had chosen. So question. What lessons do we law from from this relationship? What lessons do we learn about the great controversy between God and Satan? Why was Mephibosheth initially prejudiced against David? Notice his prejudice against David was not inherent to David's character or David's attitude towards him. It was because enemies had misrepresented. Him. Lies had been told. He had believed those lies. Has God suffered such a circumstance? Has God been lied about? Have, have people, has God's intelligent creatures, believed lies about him? How did David respond to the lies that were told? To reveal the truth. How did David reveal the truth? By a proclamation? No, by action. By deed, by revelation of who he was and the choices that he made in relating to Mephibosheth. How has God dealt with the allegations against him? Same way. way. Revealing truth over time. So what about those who only hear lies and falsehoods? What if, Mishib, what if Mephibosheth had never had a personal encounter with David? What if he'd heard the reports of the enemies, but for some reason was prohibited from actually having the personal encounter with David that he got? What would have happened? 
What, might he have stayed prejudiced against David? What happened about those in the world today who hear lies about God, falsehoods, distortions, distorted and twisted theologies, and never hear the truth or encounter God for themselves? Do you see this is one of Satan's weapons? This is how Satan entraps people. Jesus said, upon this church, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What kind of a weapon is a gate? It's defensive. Christ has brought the sword, the sword of the Spirit, and the sword of the Spirit is truth, and it demolishes. We demolish everything, it says in Corinthians, that set itself up against the knowledge of God and kept captive every thought. Satan lied. He took man captive by lies. He still holds the world by lies. We have the weapons of truth that demolish strongholds and set minds free. It is our job to take these, these, these weapons forward, the methods of truth and love. So, when I first moved to Dalton, I met Christy, she was director of medical staff services, and I recognized what a fair young lady she was. And so I started asking her out, and she started telling me no. She turned me down six times over eight months before she went out with me. And after we started dating, finally, I asked her what the deal was. And she had been dating someone prior to me, and that person had told her a bunch of lies about me. Told her things that were untrue. And it took eight months of me going by her office and just visiting with her, seeing her in the cafeteria and talking to her, uh, and about uh, and just visiting, sometimes asking out. About every six weeks I'd ask her out, but many times I wouldn't ask her out. And it took about eight months of her encounters with me for her to finally say, you know, I am not seeing in my encounters what I've been told. I need to spend some more time, gather more evidence. And so we started dating. And, of course, we lived happily ever after. <laughs> yes. And when Mephibosheth was taken into the, the, he was summoned to the king's palace. Can you imagine what he felt? I mean, based on the history and everything else, when he's coming to the king's palace. I mean, David was gracious and loving and everything else. But based on the summons, he undoubtedly had great fear and anxiety about coming before the king. Oh, you hear that? Do you think it's true? Absolutely. Based on what? lies based on lies that he believed how many are afraid of God God is calling them how many are terrified to go see him why lies I ask this in churches where I do lectures I'll say you know in the front of churches they'll often have a room on either side of the pulpit that you can get ready and come off you know the deacons and stuff come up okay I say I want you to imagine right now that we are privileged today that we have in real physical human presence Jesus Christ behind this door And any of you that would like can go in and have a one-on-one, face-to-face conversation with Jesus. And behind this door, we are privileged to have the the Heavenly Father, Jesus' Father, our Almighty God, sitting here. And anyone who would like to go in can have a one-on-one with Him. Which door do you choose? Jesus. Almost everybody chooses Jesus. But Jesus, have you seen me? You've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Why are you choosing Jesus over the Father? He says, no one can come to the Father except through me. I came out from the Father. No one knows him except me. I came out from him to reveal him to you, to bring you back to him. We still have these lies operating in our head about the Father. And we are to be brought into unity. Father, I pray that they will be one, as you and I are one. Me and them, you and me, all of us, one. This is what we're moving toward. So lies are still operating to keep us afraid of God. I think many people are still afraid of God. And so I had this experience myself. Of how it works. People tell lies. Lies affect whether people will give you an opportunity. If you get an opportunity to know them, then the evidences of the truth of who you are over time will eventually reveal the lies to be false. But doesn't it take time? Can you just stand up and declare, that's a lie, it's not true, and it's all settled? Or does it take evidence over time? So... When someone misrepresents us and lies about us, our reputations can be hurt. And the only remedy, then, is evidence over time. When we present the truth about God, Satan hates it, and he stirs up all his forces to obstruct. Read about Jeremiah and how he was bitterly opposed as he was presenting the truth. Or look at Christ himself, the light which lightens all men, and how he was treated. Those who shine the light of God's truth in this world will be opposed. Satan hates it. And one of his one of his strategies is if he, if he can't destroy the message of truth, what does he do? He tries to destroy the messenger. 
to divert attention away with lies and distortions and, and rumors. So watch for the strategy of diversion, the message, because the message we teach is about God. And Satan cannot defeat the message, so he will try to divert our attention to something else. But we have the opportunity to be like David, who even though Mephibosheth thought wrongly about David, David still reached out in love and kindness. And so we want to pray. Pray for our enemies. Father, fill our hearts with love for those who would attack us. And let's add as a class, let's resolve as we go forward to present the truth about God that the more vicious the attacks, the more kind, patient, and loving we will be. When we find out who is behind attacks on us, let's pray for them. Let's reach out and love for them. And in fact, let's, let's, let's pray for them right now. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would fill our heart with your love. Love for you and love for our enemies. Let your love flow through us to them. We pray for our enemies right now, Lord. We don't even know who they all are, but you know. We know they are only our enemies because they haven't yet fully come to know you. They don't have an experience with your love, your kindness, your grace. They haven't seen the beauty of your face and been held in the tenderness of your arms. Or there is some lie at work, some falsehood, some misunderstanding, and we pray for the truth, the truth that heals, the truth that sets free so that your family on earth can be united with your family in heaven in the circle of your love. Father, reach those who would do us harm with your kindness and grace and love. Empower our hearts to love them, that all of our actions will be in harmony with your character, and we may all become one as you are one. Amen. And as I talk about this process, how can we seek to bless our enemies here in Collegedale? How can we love our enemies? We need to recognize that it is times like this that we have the opportunity to join God in union. We can step into oneness with him because we can then practice the way he practices methods when he's attacked. So how can we put into action our union with God and love our enemies here and now in Collegedale? I think that um, it always is good to surprise people by not reacting the way people would normally react when they're attacked, by being reasonable, by being loving, by listening and talking courteously and treating them with respect, the respect you would like them to treat you with, but which they aren't, and by, by showing by example and by word and by deed a different sort of person that they, than they had in mind. I like it. When, uh, when the people... The Pharisees, the religious leaders, brought the woman caught in adultery and threw before Jesus. They were there to try and trap him, right? They were his enemies. He knew their secrets, didn't he? What did he do? He protected their reputations. He protected their reputations. So when we're being attacked, we don't want to attack back. We don't want to expose the weaknesses and the mistakes of our enemies. We want to keep confidences. We don't want to spread rumors. We want to be like Christ and protect even the reputations of our enemies. We want to love them. Isn't that true? Other examples of what Christ did. Did he retaliate against them? We don't want to retaliate. Did he seek to reconcile? Did he reach out in love constantly? Should we also be seeking out in love, to try and reconcile with those who would do us harm. But after we do all this and other things, what happens if they still won't reconcile? What happens if they won't talk to us? What happens if they, we never get an opportunity to actually speak to them? They won't speak to us. What do you do? Have you ever had that happen in your life? Someone who's your enemy that you pray for, that you want reconciliation with, that you reach out to, and they... W- and, and they, and they attack you from behind the scenes constantly, but you reach out, you want reconciliation, but they won't. What do you do? He says you let go. No, I work with a man like that. By being his example, he just didn't know any better than calling you names or being rude or didn't care about how people thought of him. But by being an example, he has come along and he started to realize this, this ain't right. So this is a good point because you've had interaction with him. You were around him. He at least could observe you in action. How about if the person you don't work with, they're just around the community, but they never have any direct interaction with you. And they won't talk to you when you try to talk to them. That's your fault. Pray for them. Pray for them. 
It's a difficult circumstance, isn't it? Did, did God have this trouble with Lucifer? He tried to talk to Lucifer. He tried to persuade him. Did eventually Lucifer close his mind to God? Yeah. And there was nothing more God could do for him. When we close our hearts and minds, what can God do? Yes. Question: When you say reconcile, what exactly is that? What does reconcile mean? Any thoughts about that? Peace. Where we actually have in our hearts to bless, uplift, and seek the welfare and good of the other party. But it doesn't mean we have to go back to the previous... Oh, no. It doesn't mean that you have to go back to a previous state of being or a previous way of living arrangement. But it means your heart attitude is one of, I'm their friend. I care for them. I want to bless them. I want to help them. I don't want to hurt them. But I mean, even like in interacting with them, doesn't mean that. Should you expect interaction with them again? If there's general reconciliation, true reconciliation, think about this. Are we all planning in this room, is it in your heart's plan, as far as God's grace allows, to be in heaven? Yes. Who might be your neighbor there? Do you think David's going to be in heaven? Yes. Do we have every reason to expect Uriah will be there? Yes. What will their attitude toward each other be? And are we not preparing here on earth today that when he comes, we will be like him, for we shall see him face to face? Be like him how? In love. This is Revelation chapter 12. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Those are the ones ready to meet Jesus. They've put aside this need to protect self and watch out for self. They're willing to lay down their life for others. This is where we're trying to get. We're trying to come into a unity of brotherly love, are we not? As they had in the upper room for a short period of time in earth history when the Spirit came. We're trying to prepare our hearts to receive the Spirit to transform and regenerate. To take away our fears that we can actually love. And let me tell you, it's very interesting. It's For some of you who were at the lecture a, couple, a week or so ago, when we come to a place where we really trust God with our lives, our brain releases oxytocin, which causes a bonding This is human bonding, but we have a bonding with God, a unity with God, a neurological rewiring with Him when we genuinely trust Him. It's powerful stuff. He's trying to bring us into that unity where we love each other and trust each other. Yes, a hand, yes. This goes back to the discussion previously we've had about forgiveness. We need to be loving and forgiving of one another, but we don't need to be vulnerable to them or place ourselves into a position where we can be harmed by them if they're... Oh, that's exactly right. That's why it takes true reconciliation. We have a hard attitude. We forgive. We want reconciliation. But does that mean the other person can be trusted? See, that takes time to reveal and also time to grow and mature. And there are different levels of distrust we've talked about before uh, or untrustworthiness. A person can be untrustworthy because they're actually your enemy. Satan, we would all agree, is untrustworthy. We can't trust him. Osama bin Laden, most of us would say, we couldn't trust with our lives. He's untrustworthy. He would love to use us to get his political agenda and kill us on on television somewhere to cause terror and horrific uh, responses. No, he can't be trusted. But there's another kind of untrustworthiness. And most of us, the people in our life, most of the people we don't trust are not the Osama bin Ladens of the world. It's this other kind. You're a treasurer at the church here, and, and you've collected all the offerings, and, and this weekend you've counted them all up, you've got it ready to go to the bank, and you've got $5,000 in cash to go to the bank Monday morning. And you have a five-year-old son who's a good kid, and he says, Daddy, I'll take the money to the bank for you. Would you trust your five-year-old with 5000 in cash? Because he's evil? Because he has his, in his heart to do harm? Because he wants to steal? No, there's nothing evil in his heart. But he is not mature enough yet to be self-governed as the fruits of the Spirit, to handle the responsibilities. And we have people in our lives who are chronologically adults, but have not developed through God's grace the gifts of the Spirit to be self-governed. They can't be trusted because, and this is where Peter was, by the way, Jesus could not trust Peter in the upper room. And Peter said, if anybody else leaves, I'll give my life for you. Peter was not lying. Put him in a lie detector, he would have passed lie detector. He meant what he said. He was sincere. And he also loved Jesus. Why didn't he stick by his word then? Because, key issue, even though he loved Jesus, up to that point, he still loved himself more. And when push came to shove, he could not be trusted. Because self-centeredness, this animal propensity, shot forward, overruled his own judgment, and he acted to protect self. He wasn't that Revelation 12, 11, these are, not, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. He was still there, willing to protect self and sacrifice Christ to protect himself. 
conversion, and Christ said, when you're converted to be my sheep, happens when we come to that point in life where we have really died to self. That we really love God and others more. And when push comes to shove, we'll give ourselves to help others. Those people can be trusted. And you think about the people you really trust in your life. Isn't it the people you know love you more than they love themselves? And if push came to shove, they'd give themselves for you. In this class, that's what we're all to become. We are to come to love every one of us that you know everybody in this room loves you more than they love themselves. And that you love me and everyone in this room more than you love yourself. That is not human. That is supernatural. That is Holy Spirit. That is God regenerating. That is God's design that we come into oneness and unity. And that can only come when the lies about God have been pushed out of our mind. We come back to see him as he is in Christ and we trust him. Then we experience that unity. We have an opportunity here. This is what God is waiting for. To come to love others as he has loved us. Yes? Yeah. It's powerful, man. It's powerful. It's exciting. Isn't it exciting? I'm going to skip Tuesday, even though some really good things about relationships and families and how to communicate in families. It's in the notes. If, if you don't get the notes, you can you know, um, get them off our website, which we post every week. But there's a lot of good things about communication and families. Thursday's lesson. When we teach the doctrines of the church, we include the Sabbath, the state of the dead, the origins of sin, and defining beliefs. But we are careful about emphasizing, but are we as careful about emphasizing the importance of kindness and the other fruits of the Spirit? I think it's a great question. Great question. Um, do you think that within religious circles, not even just our church, but within religious circles, a lot of time is wasted on doctrinal debate. Let me just tell you, what is the final message of mercy to just go to the world, to lighten the world for Christ's coming? Christ Object Lessons 415. It is the darkness and misapprehension about God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God has been reclaimed. A message illuminating in its influence, saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. This is the message that frees us from fear, wins us back to trust, brings us back into the unity. But we spend a lot of time arguing doctrines instead. And I want to show you how we can take a truth, we can take a truth, use that truth to obstruct the truth. We can take the truth, present the truth, and obstruct the truth. How? Imagine a thousand-piece puzzle. Ever done a thousand-piece puzzle? Yeah, thousand piece puzzle. And we take one piece out of that puzzle. And we study that piece. We quantify its shape, the depth of the thickness of the piece, the colors on it. We create, write books about this piece in this puzzle. This is a doctrine. But we don't put the piece back in the puzzle to see the whole picture. We separate it from the picture and we describe it. So we do things like the Sabbath. Sabbath's true. Seventh-day Sabbath. Doctrine, true. We define it. We quantify it. We study Sabbath through history. And then we create a distortion of the picture. God is arbitrary, and the Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience. Not in the picture. Created when we just study the piece separated from the picture. Now, the Bible has more than a thousand pieces. And it's designed to create a beautiful picture of what? The truth about God. For though we live in the world, we do not wage wars. The world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. It has always been about the knowledge of God and will always be an eternity about the knowledge of God. And the picture of the scripture's primary message is God's revelation of himself to us. And what happens is when we take the doctrines which are right and true, and separate them from the picture and fail to put them back in the context of the whole, the truth about God, we can create distortions about God and miss the picture. And this happens a lot. The Pharisees in Christ's day had the truth about the seventh-day Sabbath, separated from the picture, and they crucified the Lord of the Sabbath. They did not see God, even though they had the doctrine. This is what I'm talking about. And there's another thing that we do, and that is, we take the declaratives of Scripture, the statements, the proof texts, and create theology without joining them appropriately with the historical facts of what actually happened. For instance, if you were uh, to speak to an aborigine 
uh, who's never heard anything of the Scripture, and just give them a, a, a Bible text all by itself, disconnected from Scripture, a great Bible text, God is love. And that's all you give them. They don't know anything else but that. Do you understand that is meaningless? Because that, that phrase alone doesn't tell them who God is. It doesn't tell them what love looks like. What is it that gives that text power? Is the evidence of God's behavior and action to man after sin. All cultivating in the life of Christ. This is evidentiary. And so we have to join together the evidence of what God has done with the descriptions of what he's done to form theology. Some of the worst theology comes when we just take the, 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 the verbal statements and not actually join it together with the history of what's happened. Yes? Rich man and Lazarus is a good example of that, where churches devise whole theologies around what that means for life after death, and they don't realize that Lazarus was did die and was raised by Jesus shortly thereafter, and they still didn't believe him, just like in the parable. Exactly. Exactly. Good example. And there's so many examples of how this happens. And so we have a beautiful picture. And the more pieces, or another thing we do, imagine taking that thousand-piece puzzle, and instead of taking one thing and you, and you describe accurately that one piece, you take six or 12 or 20 or 50 of the pieces and you make a picture out of it instead. What happens? You create a false picture, don't you? It's not the real thing. So when you actually start, let me tell you, when you actually start with a, with a thousand piece puzzle, where do you start? Why do you start with the borders? because they have a straight edge which is constant and measurable likewise when we study God's word we need to start with the constants the things that are measurable to frame our border and the constants of God's word are his law law of love, law of liberty, law of worship his laws which are testable, which are revealed in his word and Jesus Christ who is the law in living form, the fulfillment of the law, these are our touchstones these are our constants, these are the things we can look at to measure our ideas and theologies, and then when we have an idea our theology come, if it deviates from the, from the framework of God's law and the character of God revealed in Christ then something is not fitting in our puzzle, we need to, we need to relook at those pieces yes we also, though, wear different colored glasses and we see things from a different perspective. And I think we need to ask the Spirit to change and give us clarity. You have a group of people at the time of Christ that had looked at the Old Testament stories and got a terrible picture of God. In fact, many of my friends look at the, say the Old Testament God is a God of wrath and doom and despair. And yet Christ came and read those same scriptures and came up with a totally different picture of God. I think we have to have the Holy Spirit change our paradigm when we read. I like it. And, and, I, and I'm so appreciative of what he just said. Because don't anyone think that I was suggesting that we are doing this with just human reason alone. Oh, no, no, no. It was implied, it was understood that our study of God's Word is always with a humble attitude aided by the Holy Spirit to enlighten our... our, our. hope everybody understood that. Yes, no, we're not doing this in our own human reason and wisdom alone. It's the Holy Spirit enlightening our minds to comprehend and understand these things. So, with that in mind, just a couple of closing thoughts about questioning some of the things that we've believed. Is it okay to question things held long time by our own church? Doctrines that are in print and published. Listen to this from Councils to Writers and Editors, page 35. There's no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there's no more truth to be revealed and that all of our, Seventh-day Adventists, expositions of Scripture are without error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine loses anything by close investigation. And then this is at a review in Herald, uh, July 26, 1892. We have many lessons to learn, and many, many to unlearn. God and heaven alone are infallible. Those who think that they will never have a, to give up a cherished view, never have occasion to change an opinion, will be disappointed. As long as we hold to our own ideas and opinions with determined persistency, we cannot have the unity for which Christ prayed. And then the last thing, because one of the great things I think about our church is, our church has never had a creed, required creed, as a, as a requirement to membership. This is the creed of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Re- Review and Herald, December 15, 1885. 
When God's word is studied, comprehended, and obeyed, a bright light will be reflected to the world. New truths received and acted upon will bind us together in strong bonds to Jesus. The Bible and the Bible alone is to be our creed, the sole bond of union. All who bow to this holy word will be in harmony. Our own views and ideas must not control our efforts. Man is fallible, but God's word is infallible. Instead of wrangling with one another, let men exalt the Lord. Let us meet all our opposition as did our maker with saying, It is written, let us lift up the banner on which is inscribed the Bible, our rule of faith and discipline. What is the primary central theme of scripture? This truth about God's character of love. And when we have the Bible as our theme, we come back to present that truth and it binds us together in unity as a unity of love and appreciation for God and those who practice his methods of other-centered love. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such extreme lengths to provide us your word. You have come in the person of Jesus Christ, the living word, to fulfill the meaning of the written word, so that we can see you in action, your thoughts made audible and visible to us, Lord. May we appreciate, may the Holy Spirit enlighten, may the Holy Spirit connect the dots of all the scriptures we've studied through the years, so that the picture of this puzzle may come together and we can see you clearly shining in the face of Jesus, and that by beholding you will be changed, and our hearts will be filled with love, the fear will be pushed aside, and we will come into that unity, that brotherly love, that in this church, this group may, may be a shining light in this world, that this message may go out, and we can see you soon face to face. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.